0: So we have just two weeks left in the epistle of St. Peter. And in Sunday school for this session, we'll take our break for a summer. As we move forward to conclude this epistle by our patron saint, I want us to see the pattern that saint peter is using to bring christians who are undergoing persecution and others who with the potential of undergoing persecution and martyrdom how is he bringing them and setting the stage for them to live as christ in the midst of something that quite frankly is hard for us to fathom being faced with martyrdom being faced with such persecution. We've talked about that before in this class. This is something foreign to us. I don't mean foreign that we don't understand what martyrdom is. I'm talking about foreign from experience, and there's a big gap in between knowing what it is, and it is happening in other countries all the time, and it happening to us, martyrdom. Now, persecution, we're starting to grow aware of in this country. Okay. But St. Peter is instructing the church how to live in the midst, to glorify God in the midst of such things. And at the end of chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2, he exhorts the church to the highest virtue at all times, the virtue of the love of God. Love one another. Love one another. And love your enemies. And you show forth the glory of God. And on end of chapter 2... Because He's calling us to love, He's having us remove the stumbling blocks to love. The things that are in our hearts that separate rather than create unity. Okay? And then to receive the much needed grace which we all need to love, He says, you come to Christ as a living stone, Christ being the living stone. You, a living stone, come to Christ as a living stone, and you take your place in the entire church. And there you are built to perfection by the cornerstone, the foundation being set perfectly. Cornerstone Christ, foundation the apostles. Now you're built into a house that glorifies God together. That's how we will live out this love of God. And in chapter 3 to mid-chapter 3, he shows the way of love. And it's interesting that the first thing he does in chapter 3 is he, he says, My friends, you are pilgrims. You are to live as pilgrims, sojourners, foreigners in this world. So much so that just like a foreigner from another nation, something about you sticks out as something that is here but doesn't necessarily perfectly fit. Because you're not of this world. And you're not to live as one of this world. And then he gets specific on into chapter 3. How love for God is demonstrated in us. You know, I took a look back at last week. And I find it interesting that in every category in which, remember St. Peter, he spoke into very specific areas of very real life for the Christians. How do we live as servants? How do we live under our government? How do we live in marriage, in holy matrimony, in the family unit? And there's a tie in every one of them. We talked about it, but I didn't notice the consistent tie until I looked back at it. You know what the tie is? Submit. Submit. Humility. Submit to your civil authorities. And of course, like we said last week, we don't mean when the civil authority tells us to go against the virtues of God, the morality of the kingdom of God. And yet, when it doesn't, we are to submit for God places those authorities. Servants, submit to your masters. Serve them well. Regardless of how they treat you, submit. And we talked about that. What is our current servitude, so to speak? It's not the same type of servitude they have. In some cases it was. But some of us gave examples of our workplaces, our bosses. They may or not be moral. They may or may not be just and fair. And yet we are to submit. Husbands and wife lovingly submit one to another, and there God is glorified. So we have this idea of submission in order to demonstrate the love of God. And it's no different in the body of Christ. We are called to submit one to another. And as we submit, the love of God is demonstrated, shared, and we all experience it. This week... St. Peter now comes back full circle for a moment as he returns to how, again, the church demonstrates the love of God to one another and we keep ourselves from anything that stands in the way of that expression. Who has 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12? Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, a blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from people, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The first thing he says, when drawing together how the body of Christ manifests the love of God, He makes this statement, finally, all of you church, all of you living stones, be of one mind. This is an incredible statement, because this has everything to do with our God-gifted wills. What do I mean by God-gifted wills? We're made in the image of God. God has a will. When He created us, He gave us what He has. It has everything to do with the God-gifted will. It is about our will submitting to one another so that we are joined to one another in perfect unity, in perfect harmony. We are to be of one mind. And the collective will of the church, of course, being one with that of the Holy Trinity. In other words, we're to be of one mind exactly as the three persons of the Holy Trinity are of one mind. And that gets expressed in the Gospel of St. John. I want to look at this for just a second. When it comes to the Holy Trinity and the three persons being of one mind. In St. John in chapter 5, he talks about the Son of God. And it says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. Do you see the oneness? The submission of the will, even of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. The Father shows him what he's doing. The Son of God says, there it is that I do. We become one in purpose, one in action, and that oneness is demonstrated in the earth through the Son of God by the joined will of Father and Son. What about the Holy Spirit? St. John chapter 16. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. I want you to hear that. He will not speak on His own authority. He's not divided from the Father and the Son. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it, to you. This is what it means to be of one mind. Just as we witness the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reason it's such a mystery, why they call the Holy Trinity a mystery, we know there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not the mysterious part. The mystery of how three persons are one. It's hard to fathom that. One, two, three persons, we're separate. I love you. Right? But, But the three of us And yet, how do we become one? In love. In love. Our minds are shared with the mind of the Father. Our will is shared together. Together with the will of the Father. And when that happens, all of us who are many, like Paul said, out of many pieces you've been made one loaf Again, this is not a matter of thinking of a good idea of oneness. It's about becoming one. And how do we become one? We submit ourselves to the Father first and foremost, the Holy Trinity. And we all together come under what He shows us. No matter what we think, no matter what we want, no matter what we think our right is. We live in such humility that we live and dwell in perfect harmony. Which is why Psalm 133 says that beautiful statement. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. Oneness. And so St. Peter says, be of one mind, church. And that is of the mind of God. Who we are told Jesus Christ shares that With us, Just as the Holy Spirit has it shared and He expresses it. Just so Jesus Christ sees what the Father is doing and He does it. In the same way, we are to be of one mind. And then He gives some examples of how to dwell virtuously as one. Because He says from there, He says, have compassion on one another. Have compassion on one another. I don't want to go too much into this because I've said this many times. But compassion for one another means this. I look at each one of you and you look at one another. and You look at me. And you see the humanity and the brokenness that's there. The places that I need our Lord Jesus Christ to heal my soul. You see that. And you ache with the compassion of the Father for what I miss, for what I lack because of my humanity. And you pray for my healing. You pray for one another's being made whole. When we're acting out in our humanity, which we all do, we're a family. We act out in our humanity. We let words fly that ought never come out of our mouths. We complain about trifles. We all do this. Right? We all do this. Have compassion. What does that mean? I look through what comes out of the human person and I look to the inside and I ask God to give me His prescription glasses to see what's going on with the person, the brokenness, so that I can love them. So that I can pray for them in their brokenness rather than responding with vile based on what's coming against me perhaps. I look into the brokenness and I ache within myself. But remember this, it's not just a hurting Because when Jesus had compassion, when he hurt, that pain drove him to do something to relieve the suffering. So we are called to have compassion on one another. To ache over one another's brokenness. Not respond to it negatively. To ache as Christ aches. And to seek how we may be of use to Christ in the healing of our brother and sister in Christ. Have compassion for one another. And then he says, love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Love as brothers, and we'll throw in there as sisters. Same concept. You've heard me say this many times over. It's a shame. It's understandable, but it's a shame how we deal with each other's offenses so differently in the body of Christ than we do in our own families. Right? In our homes, do we not aggravate Trick one another at times, cause one another discomfort by our actions, say things that are uncomfortable, harm one another.
1: Yes, you yes, we do, right? <laughs> Debbie?
0: <Yeah. laughs> Don't talk about it right now, but yes, we do. We'll talk later. <laughs> this yes, good. We, yes. God bless you. Already. I, am, I have just succeeded <laughs> point made in family. in families we tend to deal I say this carefully because I know some families don't deal well with the pains we inflict on each other. What I'm trying to say is this. We so readily move on and sometimes when it comes outside of a family and it happens in the body of Christ, we hold grudges a lot longer. We dig deeper. We dig our heels in sometimes um, that occurs. But the reality is this. From the time of your baptism The blood of Christ runs in your veins and it's thicker than your family blood. And it's certainly more eternal. Each one of us has the same sharing of blood within us. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so St. Peter is saying, love as brothers. Long-suffering he's talking about. Enduring one another. And returning love. It says, be tender-hearted. I love this word in the Greek. It's, it's, it's a gorgeous word in English. A tender-hearted person. To be tender-hearted means being infinitely gentle with one another. Being infinitely gentle with one another. Go out of your way not to harm one another. Be tender towards one another. Handle one another with great care and keep our harshness in check. Okay, as best as we can with the help of the Holy Spirit. And the last one he says is be courteous. Now this is an interesting word. When you hear the word courteous, word association, what, what do you think of? Good it, manners? Polite. Manners, mm-hmm. Polite? Yeah. And, and those are good, those are two great and perfect descriptions of courteous in my mind. Putting someone else first. Ah, putting someone else first. And that gets to the crux of the actual Greek word. The actual Greek word is this. And and when you go from this Greek word, it plays into what's been said. Those two definitions. But to be courteous means this. To be humble-minded. Having a humble opinion of oneself. It is literally, literally to live in the body of Christ with the nature of the tax collector, not the Pharisee. I am not better than. I am most in need of mercy. What do we proclaim in the Mass? We call ourselves the greatest of sinners, of whom I am chief. Right? That's courteous. Everyone else, I want to love before me. You see? Greater than myself, actually. Not just as myself. And then St. Peter says this. We covered this just a little bit, but I'll just point to it. He says, not returning evil, when we live amongst each other, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. There's never one moment that any one human being has the right of vengeance. Not in the kingdom of God. There's never one time where a human being has the right of enacting vengeance upon someone who does something to them or someone that they care about. Vengeance is whose, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine says the Lord. In fact, St. Peter goes even further. He says, we are not to live in vengeance with one another, returning evil for evil. But he goes one step further. He takes you the entire opposite direction. When you're injured, when you're wounded by another person, what are you to return? Blessing. Blessing upon those who dash against us with their humanity. In fact, I'll give you the perfect example of this. I never can get it, quite frankly, completely out of my mind ever since a couple of stations of the cross ago. A couple years ago. We get to that station of the cross where our Lord Jesus Christ is being nailed to the cross. And both in the meditation and in the prayer of that one station, it makes the same statement twice. Jesus Christ being nailed to the cross. Praise for the nailers. These are the ones that are inflicting agony, pain, physical on him, but also emotional in that they were ridiculing him, degrading him. All of those things, and what does he return? With blessing, and it was an incredible blessing. One that we ought to take note of in the rest of our life, try to get to. He said, forgive them. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. And that comes back full circle to what we were saying a minute ago. When people are that, when one another, or those outside of the body of Christ, or those in our families, when they dash against us with their humanity, you see what Jesus says? Father, forgive them. He looks right to the heart of their brokenness. And He makes the greatest statement that if we could only comprehend about our brothers and sisters and all who we're in relationship with, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. In other words, their personal brokenness has blinded them from knowing that what they're doing is such a great offense and harm. And Jesus proclaims to those who were crucifying Him, humiliating Him, He was proclaiming blessing. For He'd come to do just that. In verse 10 that you heard read, For he who would love his life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, St. Peter, we heard this before. In the list of things that stand in the way and are barriers... To loving one another. Remember half of the list that he gave us in 1 Peter chapter 2. Half of them had to do with the tongue. Half of them had to do with the mouth. For he who would love life and see good days. There's a promise here. For he who would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Because the tongue is a sharp and two-edged sword that divides on the one hand, or when it is brought into submission to the Holy Spirit, it pronounces and brings about and manifests blessings in the same moment. What do we want to manifest in the body of Christ? Blessings or curses? Because I tell you this, they go both ways. When we curse with our mouth you think they're the only ones that are getting it? That it's not bouncing back upon us destroying our own peace? And yet at the same time, when this tongue speaks blessing, that goes both ways as well. And peace is there to be experienced in the body of Christ amongst one another. And so he speaks this for In fact, in all that St. Peter says about the tongue, remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. Where does what comes out of our mouth come from? From the heart. If it's cursed, I say. From the heart. Satan can tempt. Satan tempts the Christian, right? Certainly, ultimately. Also, our own humanity coupled together, giving obedience to Satan rather than you know, the Holy Spirit. But from the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus says in St. Luke in chapter 6. It's about the condition of us, not the condition of the person I'm talking to. And so the life of repentance of the Christian is the one that seeks after the healing work of God in my own soul. In your own soul. And as souls are healed by Christ, curses begin to turn to blessings. Because a life is transformed in our midst and that's what our lord jesus christ says you see so now he comes back having addressed love again he wants to talk again in second peter 3:13 through 17 about the current state of the christians that are undergoing persecution and give them a bit of hope who has second peter 3:13 through 17 Suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed or it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil thank you so once again what I was trying to say and yeah. I think what you were trying to say is what is in your heart yes. is what you do so in other words if you're cursing mm-hmm. someone that is still what's in your heart yes, and indeed. that would come from Satan mm-hmm. yeah correct ultimately that's absolutely correct yeah, that, and that's exactly what he attempts to get us to do. What What is Satan's? Look at look, go back to the garden. What is his end goal? Division, dividing man from God. Wasn't that the whole deal? Because he knew there's no life outside of God. If I cut off man from God, man loses life. Death enters the world. Right? In the body of Christ, you don't think the methodology is the same, right? He is still the very object of, of the creation of disunity, disharmony harmony, lack of peace. Mm-hmm. Right? So absolutely, absolutely. And in second Peter three thirteen through seventeen St. Peter starts out with what you heard read, and he who will harm you, he, sorry, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. Remember who he's speaking to? These people are standing right in the face of Rome, as well as some Jewish persecution. And Rome is now set to imprison and kill Christians. Who is he that can do harm to you? St. Hilary says this, Who can prevent you from being blessed? For the scriptures say that no one can take our joy from us. St. Augustine, If you love the good, you will suffer no loss. Because whatever you may be deprived of in this world, you will never lose God, who is the true good. Who is the true good. In other words, Christians, what St. Peter is saying is, are we or are we not a people of the resurrection and of the resurrected Jesus Christ? We're in the face of death here. We're in the face of our bodies being destroyed. We're in the face of our bodies being tortured. Our lives taken from us, our properties being taken from us. All of these things, are we or are we not a people of the resurrection that you have experienced in your baptism and in your lives? That's what he's saying. Do we or do we not believe that eternity, which includes the right now, is all that matters. Is all that matters to the life of the follower of Christ. Those who remain in Christ because they have the Christ of eternity that can't be taken away from them. So what are you fearing? He's bringing them back to truth. He's setting Christ right before him. Like we've talked about before, he's calling them to fix their eyes, get them off the circumstance back onto Christ. Because Christianity is a faith of absolute hope for those who remain therein. And then St. Peter says an interesting statement. He says... So if that's the truth, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's a very interesting statement. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. When you look at that, to sanctify something, it's kind of like consecrating. You take something out of normal use and you set it aside for holy use. Something sanctified, it's almost like purified. Made holy is the same type of idea. And he's saying sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. God needs no sanctification. So it's an interesting statement. I've always wrestled with that. Let's have a stab at this. A number of the fathers say that St. Peter is pulling from Isaiah and chapter 8 when you look at the language that he uses here. In Isaiah and chapter 8, the prophet Isaiah says this, The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow in your hearts. Let Him be your fear, and let Him... Be your dread. Let me read you the words of Father Lawrence Farley uh, Farley, as he would comment on this. He's saying, Therefore the Christians should not fear their fear. That is the fear of intimidating threats of the pagans. Neither be shaken from their composure in Christ. Instead, they should sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts. By sanctifying Christ as Lord, St. Peter means that the Christian should reverence Christ as the only true Lord from His deepest being, openly confessing Him. Society may think Caesar is Lord and ultimately in control, but the believer knows Christ is the one who rules over all and nothing can befall him that Christ does not allow. Again, it's setting your face back on Christ. You see what the Christians, in their humanity, and all of us would be faced with in a time of persecution and martyrdom. They're fearing the loss of their life, but they're fearing the loss of their life at the hand of Caesar, at the hand of the rulers, at the hand of the Romans. And he says, No, no, you sanctify God in your hearts. Why are they your fear? They're so temporary, they're so fleeting. They don't have the power of God. They don't have the power of God to the resurrection and life. Sanctifying God in your hearts means placing your reverent fear in the right place. It's not of anything of this world. It's the one who we will go before in the end. And it's the one who stands with us in the moment. Set your hearts upon Christ. Does that make sense? Does that kind of clear up the sanctify your hearts? Okay. All right, good. And then he says, Always be ready to give a defense to all these Christians. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better... If it is the will of God to suffer for doing good, than for doing evil. Always be ready to give a defense to those who ask for a reason. Never forget the man, the saint, who is writing this. He failed three times at this. Saint Peter failed three times to give a defense. Instead, he defended himself. He chose himself. He chose self-preservation when Christ was on trial. And they said, you were with him. You belong to that group. And every time he denied Christ, and yet Christ redeemed him thrice by saying, do you love me after the resurrection? But then don't forget how that experience of the healing work of God in Peter's heart, that great forgiveness, what would happen through St. Peter? On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would be poured out, St. Peter would then stand before all, including the same Jewish leaders that put Christ to death not too long before. And he would stand before them and proclaim the Christ of the resurrection openly, without fear of what might happen to him. And secondly, he would do this a number of times, because sometimes when when God would use St. Peter to heal someone, and a crowd would gather, they'd bring him, they'd arrest him. And they'd bring him before the authorities and they would question him. Never again would he deny Christ because Peter had sanctified God in his heart. Not of his own strength, but by the gift of the experience of the resurrected Christ forgiving him and healing his own soul. He would stand before those who, would, who could put him to death at any moment. And he would give a defense of the faith that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And He's calling all of the church to do the same. That when they defame you as evildoers, in other words, they tell you you're wrong. They tell you you're stupid. They tell you you're ignorant for your faith. We never hear that in this culture, right? Uh We never see Christianity being belittled and thrown away as if we just know nothing. Saying, you evildoers, wrongdoers, you're just wrong about everything that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ by their own actions, if you stand firm, by the church's actions in the face of such persecution, that the ones persecuting us become ashamed. Now you need to know what that means. It doesn't mean I never should have said that. It means brought to the same repentance that saved you. When we allow in the face of suffering and in the face of persecution, and I say this because it's growing. We need to remember these things. In the face of persecution, when any Christian stands firm, like the first martyr, deacon Stephen, the proto-martyr, You remember the scene. He stood firm under the persecution. And the heavens opened up and revealed. In the midst of His persecution revealed all the reality. And many were saved. The same thing happens here. When the Christian is being persecuted, if they allow God to grace them in the moment and they sanctify the Lord in their hearts, so to speak, and stand firm, those who are persecuting many may come to repentance. Because they see Christ in the one being persecuted in the church. Their own acts. We know this from history. The greatest growth periods of the church. The greatest number of baptisms in the church come in spans of time under persecution. Should that surprise us? When Christ is offering His life and the Christians are offering their life for Him. That we see the most people saved come into the kingdom of God and begin salvation. It shouldn't surprise us at all. Who has 1 Peter three eighteen through 22 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through fire. That was once. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is also an anti-type which saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Thank you. <laughs> Here are the pattern that St. Peter is using in just that little phrase, which like she said is only two sentences, all of that. It's really kind of interesting. But the pattern is this, Christ through his suffering, St. Peter says, the just, the just for the unjust made the way for mankind to be brought back to God. And then St. Peter uses Noah and the ark as a figure of the very means by which we are all brought back to God. Remember Noah and the, the eight that were in the ark. They were saved through what? Water. They were saved through water. Everything else was washed away. All evil was washed away. And the fulfillment of this would be that which saves us by bringing us back to God through water, which is baptism. This is one of the things when I was a Protestant. This never jived with the theology I was taught. Because in Protestantism, if you believe in what they they call is believer's baptism... That means that it really baptism is a symbol of something God has already done. It's really not something that affects anything in a person's life. That's what many Protestant denominations do believe today. And then you would see a scripture like this where it says there is also an anti-type. If Noah was the type, if the ark was the type, there is something, an anti-type. It's not a type, it's the fulfillment. That's what anti-type means. The fulfillment which now saves us, baptism. Baptism. By the order of God, this is the way we come into covenant with Him and experience Christ's death and resurrection. In fact, listen to what St. Paul says about baptism in Romans 6. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? You can't miss the connection there. Baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. And then he goes on to say, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing that our old man was crucified with Him. Put to death, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to close with this, 1 through 6, but I need to cover this so that we can finish next week. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. Annette, I think you, yeah, thank you. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm, your, arm yourselves also with the same mind. But he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, and he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh from the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, wearing awful lupus, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Uh, um, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of this nation. speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in spirit. Thank you. I want to take everything that you just heard read, and I want to sum it up with using just the first verse. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. Just about everything he said is summarized by something that we say in the Mass. It's really what we're being called back to. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Even in the face of persecution, St. Peter is calling them to the same offering. Our entire lives are to be given over to the resurrected Jesus Christ who gave His entire life to take our flesh and join it to divinity. And therefore, in the face of what they're facing, and in all things that we face in this life, we are a consistent offering to God. And there's another scripture that even calls that to be a sweet aroma, pleasing to God. Let's stand.